So, we got a dog this weekend. I wish I could put a picture of him up there for you, but I didn't think of that until I was just standing right there. I was like, oh, they'd love to see a picture of our new dog. Uh, yep, our, our, our longtime faithful dog, uh, Baxter, died almost two years ago. And we waited a while, but we got a new dog. And it's very exciting. I'm, I'm already bleeding. Um, <laughs> puppy, yep. Well, you can imagine that the week before picking up the dog, we picked him up yesterday, you can imagine that most of our conversation all week long was, what are we going to call him? Uh, e- even the kids that have moved away, they were involved. We've got a Slack channel going and, and Polo, and everybody's contributing uh, names, suggestions. It's actually been really hard to figure out what to name the dog. When we picked the dog up yesterday, in fact, we still had not settled on a name. I mean, because here's the thing. The, the name needs to fit the dog. It needs to sound like a dog name. It also needs to be a name that dad is willing to shout across a field in public. <laughs> it, it can't be a silly name. It can't be too girly because it's a boy dog. It can't like inadvertently bring up all the wrong associations. Like it's not easy figuring out the right name for your dog. It's a big decision. And yet, it's, I mean, it's just a name, right? The dog is the dog, regardless of what we call it. Shakespeare wrote famously, that which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. That's true, right? In one sense, it doesn't matter what we name the dog. All the dogness is still going to be there. And, and yet, the whole reason Juliet said that was because she needed Romeo to have a different name. Because names are a big deal. Names matter. Because names convey identity. Uh, There are all sorts of places where we see this out in the world. This is why trans people change their names. It's it's why a woman, when she gets married, takes her husband's name. There's, there's, There's a thing going on there with identity. It's also why when you name your dog badly, well, it's not pretty, right? I mean, we laugh at people who name their chihuahua killer (laughs) or their Rottweiler cuddles. Yeah, no, no, that's not the dog's identity. Well, if this is true when it comes to dogs and even people, I wonder what name comes to mind when you think of God. In the Old Testament, people's names actually revealed what their parents thought about God. So Samuel actually means the God who hears, because Hannah knew that God had heard her prayer. Micah, the Old Testament prophet, his name means who is like God, as he confronted the idolatry of his people. And then there's Daniel, who we've been looking at these last few weeks. Daniel means, God is my judge. Not exactly a feel-good name, is it? And yet, I think many of us fear that that might be true. 
maybe we should all be named Daniel. Because God is going to judge us. And that is not a happy thought. Well, this morning we have come to the conclusion of the first half of the book of Daniel. Since chapter 1, we have been reminded over and over and again, almost every single chapter, that Daniel was renamed. He was renamed by the, by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He was renamed Belteshazzar. And, and throughout these opening chapters, that's often what he's been called, Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means, may Baal protect his life, Baal being the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. Well, that name, Belteshazzar, is gone when we get to chapter 6. Daniel remains, and he's only called Daniel. And it raises a question, in my mind at least. What if we've got the name wrong? What, what, what if we've actually misunderstood what it means that God is our judge? What if instead of that being bad news, it's the very best news? That's what I want us to consider this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 6. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, it's found on page 788. 788. I'm going to start by just reading the first couple of verses just to set the scene. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators including Daniel, these satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Let me just stop there and remind you where we are. The Babylonian empire is over. Belshazzar was, was, was executed in the night. The Persian army has invaded. This all happened at the end of uh, chapter 5. The Persian, the, the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians has begun. And Darius, the Mede, also known as Cyrus, is on the throne. It's about 538 B.C. Uh, we, we started, the book of Daniel starts about 605. Now we're at about 538 B.C. Daniel is old. He's probably pushing 80. He might even be past 80. And what's interesting is Daniel obviously didn't go back to Jerusalem. When Cyrus allowed the exiles to go back to Jerusalem, Daniel wasn't one of them. We don't know why, but it's clear that God still has work for Daniel to do in Babylon. And God has one last trial for Daniel in Babylon. A trial that is going to make clear that God is his judge, and that is good news. That is good news indeed. So here's, here's the argument. Here's what I want to convince you of out of Daniel chapter 6. I think it's what the author wants to convince us of. We'll put it on the screen. God rescues his people by judging their enemies. God rescues his people by judging their enemies. Here's the thing. You want God to be your judge because he's going to be your judge. I'll explain what that means as we go along. The narrative revolves around four characters or groups of characters. We're going to see the jealous conspirators. We're going to see the hapless king, 
Third, we're going to see the faithful servant. And finally, the living God. As we consider that the living God is Daniel's judge, consider what it would mean for him to be your judge as well. So first, the jealous conspirators. I'll pick it up again in verse 1, just in case you forgot about the satraps. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. All right, so we're we're looking at at some basic like bureaucracy and bureaucratic politics here at the the beginning, right? You got Darius, he's 62 years old when he comes to the throne. It's a new empire. He's trying to establish order, so he needs help. And, And he puts in place all these satraps, like governors, and then administrators over them. We don't have an equivalent of that. Uh, they're, they're like presidents over the governors. Um, and, and all of this is so that he won't be cheated of his tax revenue. He's worried he's going to be defrauded. I mean, that's, that's why you wanted to be in government then. Apparently, according to Senator Menendez, that's why you want to be in government now, uh, because being in government allows you to enrich yourself. Um, that's what he's dealing with. And, and so he kind of sets this whole thing up with checks and balances, the, the people watching each other so he is not defrauded. And Daniel is one of them. Now, that's it's kind of surprising, right? You would think, given Daniel's age, he would be ready to retire, like ready to take off the judicial robes, slip into some nice slippers, right? You know, hang out at home, maybe putter in his garden. But no. No, he's appointed one of these top administrators over a whole bunch of satraps. And we're told that because he has an extraordinary spirit, and we've seen that phrase before back in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it's a reference to the spirit of the gods, literally the spirit of God being in him. Because he has this extraordinary spirit, he excels. So much so that the king is ready to make this 80-year-old man number two in the kingdom over everybody. And once again, if you've been following along, this is like Daniel's another Joseph. But he's another Joseph as an old man. 
So I, I, I'm, I'm just going to pause like right away and, and speak to some of the older members of our congregation. We, we live in a society that does not value age. We are besotted with youth and youthfulness. But I think Daniel is surely an example to us that regardless of what our culture thinks, regardless of what society thinks, if the Spirit of God is in you, then there is good work to be done. There is usefulness and value to your life and to your work, regardless of what society thinks, regardless of your age. I mean, I'm 57, and already I can tell. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm still healthy. But I can tell, like, there, the days can come. It's going to be just, it, it, it's going to be easy to just give up, right? Just, just like, check out and, and give up and put on some comfortable shoes and watch Judge Judy or something. <laughs> you know? I, I, I get it. I can, I can feel the pull. I'm not there yet, but I can feel the pull. And, and maybe, maybe some of you are closer to that than I am. Older saint, older member of Henson, your work, your value, your usefulness in the kingdom of God and what God is doing in, in this world is not over until the Lord decides to take you home. Now, I get it. Well, your, your usefulness in the kingdom now might not look exactly what you were used to it looking like when you were younger. That's fine. But think about what it could look like. Think about what it would look like in your retirement from secular work to use some of that extra time to, to befriend some younger members and to mentor them, to encourage them. We have a lot of younger members here in the church who've moved away, who moved here away from family. They, they, they don't have a mom and a dad, a, a grandparents that are handy. I, I, one of the things that, that, that blessed my family like so much when we moved here was the way in which Bill and Chris Fransky and Peggy Staples like just invaded our family and became like surrogate grandparents for our kids. Is, is there some way in which you could be that kind of encouragement to younger families in the church? Are, are, are you still able to get out? Well, then maybe, especially because you have, maybe have a little extra time, could, could you spend some of that time visiting some of the even older members who cannot get out? Read scripture with them and pray with them. Sing a, sing a hymn with them. Can you pray? See, I, I think that there's much work still to be done. It may not be the kind of work that our culture values, but it's the kind of work and labor that the Lord values. And I know that because he's left you here to do it. Paul describes his own labor in Colossians chapter 1 as a striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. 
So older saint, how can you strive this week, not in your strength, which I get it, is failing, but in his strength, which does not fail? Well, back to Daniel, just like Joseph, Daniel gets all this favor from the king, and like clockwork, you can just expect it, right? It provokes jealousy. People are not happy about it. We saw this back in chapter three with Daniel's three friends. An ethnic outsider is getting ahead, and so a malicious plot to cut them down, in this case, cut Daniel down, is hatched. Now, they can't find anything related to his work. He's, we're, he's too trustworthy. Can you imagine your employer saying that about you? Yeah, that, that guy, he's just too trustworthy. Well, that's Daniel. He's too trustworthy. There, there, there's no negligence. There's no corruption. They, they say, look, the only way we're going to get at him is through his loyalty to God. You see that there in verse 5. We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So what do they do? They, they go to the king. They flatter the king. Oh, king, live forever. And they get him to sign this law, a law that cannot be changed like all the laws of the Medes and Persians. We saw this, if you were here, when we went through Esther, same kind of, this was, this was a thing in the Persian empire, a law that cannot be changed. And this particular law was going to require that all prayers go through Darius for one month. It's not so much that Darius thinks he's God. It's that they're really setting him up to be the sole mediator with any God or any man. And we are in chapter three all over again with a faithful servant of God being put in an impossible spot. Now, there's some differences between chapter six and chapter three. For one thing, that, that, that phallic statue in chapter three was Nebuchadnezzar's idea. It was, it was a picture of his pride and arrogance. And this is not from what we can tell, Darius's idea. This is a malicious deception. They, they say it's coming from all the administrators and governors, but Daniel clearly was not consulted. We're not told if the king was actually flattered and it kind of went to his head or if he was just way too busy to really investigate it. Or maybe just in a little bit of real politic, he thought, well, this will be good. This will really cement my place as the new ruler. Everybody has to come through me for a month. Whatever he was thinking, he's trying to nail down a new empire. He's been told all of his administrators agree, so he's willing to go along. He signs the edict, an edict that was inspired by pure hate and jealousy toward Daniel. Henson, the world hates you. The world hates you. That's not my assessment. That's Jesus' assessment. That's what he says in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. So, so don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised by the world's opposition. It's not because we're doing it wrong. There are plenty of people out there that will, that will tell you, that will tell us that if we would just do our music different or if we would just focus more on other things, 
that the world wouldn't hate us, the world would love us. It's not true. Oh, they might like those other things, but Jesus is abundantly clear on this point. The world hates the church because it is the Spirit of God that lives in the church. Jesus says it's, it's because the world hated him before it hated us, and it hates us because it hates him. We, we live in a world that is not spiritually neutral. We live in a world where there is a spiritual battle going on every day. So don't be surprised that the point of conflict, the point of opposition when it comes into your life will be exactly at that point of obedience to God versus obedience to what the world wants, worldly authority or worldly values. And I want to be really clear here. This is not just a problem on the left, and it's not just a problem on the right. This is a bipartisan issue. When the world insists that we reveal our preferred pronouns or attend a pride event in order to be part of the team at work, when the world insists that we equate political allegiance with religious allegiance, On both sides, the world is simply following the direction of the spiritual ruler of this age. Satan hates Christians. Satan hates the church, and he wants to trap us. He wants to trap us to either compromise our witness or destroy the witnesses. Do not be surprised. Do not think it's strange, as Peter puts it, when this kind of opposition comes into your life. Well, the trap has been laid. And as readers, we're wondering, okay, what's going to happen? Will Daniel be caught in the trap? Will he compromise in order to avoid the trap? If he is caught, will the king, like the king put him in this position, will the king somehow rescue him? Let's look, second, at the hapless king. The hapless king. Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any person who petitions any God or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed. For he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, 
whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. So Daniel knows about the new law. He didn't accidentally fall into this. No, he knew that the law had been signed. We see that in verse 10. But he also knows the law of his God. Now, there's no command in the Old Testament to pray with open windows towards Jerusalem three times a day. That's not the law that that Daniel has in mind. But God's word was abundantly clear that, that he was to have no other God before God. That the prayers were to be directed to God alone. You don't have to go further than Exodus 20 to see that. What's more, Daniel's practice of prayer, this praying towards Jerusalem three times a day, this, this actually shows that he, he understood his situation. He understood that they were in exile because of their sin and that their only hope Even after this initial return that that Darius had allowed, their only hope was God's mercy. His his prayer was was actually a reflection of Solomon's prayer. I should say his practice was a reflection of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings at the dedication of the now destroyed temple. Let me just read to you from uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. This is when Solomon is dedicating the temple, and in his prayer... Solomon begins to pray about the future. Solomon knows in his prayer that the people are going to abandon God and they're going to be judged by God. And so he prays in 1 Kings chapter 8. I'll pick it up in verse 47. When they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and repent, and petition you in their captor's land. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive, and when they pray to you in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors, the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and petition, and uphold their cause." May you forgive your people who sinned against you and all their rebellions against you, and may you grant them compassion before their captors so that they may treat them compassionately. For they are your people and your inheritance. This is why Daniel is praying towards Jerusalem three times a day. He remembers Solomon's prayer. He knows why they are there, and he knows the only hope is that God have mercy. Now, I think it's interesting, right? Daniel might have been able to rationalize changing his practice for just those 30 days. After all, it appeared that Darius, also known as Cyrus, is God's man. God seems to have raised him up for this very purpose, to send the exiles back. Surely God wouldn't mind me adjusting my ethics a little bit right here. Surely God wouldn't mind me going along with the power politics of the day because this pagan king is clearly God's man for God's people. 
He doesn't do it. He knew their salvation didn't depend on Darius. It depended on the Lord. And so Daniel counts the cost and continues to trust and obey God. Brothers and sisters, have you counted the cost of faithfully following Christ in our day and age, come what may? You you know, there's no guarantee that an unjust law won't be passed someday in our own nation targeting Christians or people of faith generally or a city ordinance that targets this church specifically. There's no guarantee that something like that couldn't happen. There's no guarantee that, that an unjust policy at work might not be put in place that takes aim at you individually and personally as a Christian because of your faith? So have, have you thought about this? Have you, have you counted the cost? Have you considered what you might be asked to give up in order to continue to follow Christ? Do, do you know where you'll be tempted to rationalize. That won't come from the outside. That will come from the inside. Where you'll be tempted to to disobey God in order to avoid the consequences of the world's hatred, whatever those particular consequences might be. It might be your livelihood. It might be something to do inside of your own family. Whatever that point is, I would encourage you to think about what it's going to be because rest assured, your enemy already knows what it is. And he very much intends to attack you right there. How did Daniel get through this particular attack? I love the language there in um, Uh, What is it? The end of verse 10. Just as he had done before. Daniel went up and prayed just as he'd always prayed. See, for Daniel, obedience was a habit. This is what he did. He he had made obedience habitual in his life. And so, yeah, the, the challenge came, but... He knew what he had to do, and he went on doing it. I think sometimes we think that the way that we're going to need to face that that pressure point, that attack when it comes, is by, you know, strength of will, and we've really screwed up our courage. But I'm telling you, if the habit isn't already there, it won't be there when the test comes. Uh, this, this, This last year, some of you have been kind to notice. I've, I've lost about 30 pounds uh, very slowly, so many of you won't have noticed. But, but he, here's, here's how I did. I didn't do any fat diets. I did get this app, and it helped me think about my habits and just changing slowly, day after day, some habits. Had to get rid of some bad habits, like chips and salsa. They are not my friend. Had, had, to, get, had to get some better habits in place. 
you know, like, like, like regular exercise and maybe a healthier breakfast and more vegetables and fruits. And what I found as I worked at just changing habits and patterns is at first I needed the app to help me. But now I'm ready to get rid of the app because they're habits. They're just habits. And I don't want to neglect the habits. I want to keep strengthening those habits. But that's the beauty of it. Chips and salsa can show up in the house even though we're under strict instructions not to have them. (laughs) But I can look at them and just walk away because they're not a habit anymore. And it's now just a habit to make sure that there's a lot of fruit and vegetables in my diet every day. Boy, if that, if that helps me say no to chips and, you know, yes to broccoli, imagine what habits of prayer, what, 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 what habits of scripture reading and Bible meditation will accomplish in your life. So that when the day of temptation shows up, and it will, you're not, you, you, you're not left to just like depending on sheer willpower. But no, there is a habit of obedience, empowered by the Spirit, that helps carry you through. Well, the conspirators come together again, and they catch Daniel praying as they knew they would. They knew his habits. And they scurry off with glee like so many tattletales to tell the king. That's what we see there in verse 11. And there's no flattery this time. No, may the king live forever. No, they... They just spring the trap. Verse, verse 12, didn't, didn't you sign an edict, king? Oh, we, we don't remember. Can, can, can you remind? Did, did, didn't you sign an edict? Oh, yeah, king says. Yeah, I, I signed that edict, and it's irrevocable. Can't be changed. They pounce. Well, Daniel, that Judean, that dirty Jew, He's ignored you. He's praying to his God three times a day. And all of a sudden we realize that the trap that was laid was not just for Daniel. It was for the king. The king is caught by his own law. The king is trapped by whatever naivete or passivity or whatever it was that led him to sign the edict in the first place. He may be king, but these conspirators are now calling the shots. He's he's distressed, we're told, very displeased. He he sets his mind on trying to save Daniel. He tries to come up with anything all day long. How can I rescue Daniel? But he can't. So at sundown, the conspirators show up again and say, remember, king, remember that law you signed? And remember that laws that you signed can't be changed. And so the king at sundown gives up and gives in. They're basically hanging the king by his own petard, forcing him by his own law to sacrifice his favorite. He has Daniel thrown into the lion's den there in verse 16. And his last words to Daniel are really a prayer that your God, whom you continually serve, 
do what I couldn't do. May he rescue you. Daniel goes into the den, and like a tomb, it is covered with a stone and sealed with his signet ring and that of all of his other nobles, so that nobody can tamper with it, nothing can be changed, verse 17. And the king goes home distraught to a sleepless night. There will be no diversions brought to him, meaning no concubines. He will fast until dawn. The most powerful man in the known world at that time, helpless to save his servant, his favorite. There's a, there's a warning here for us, friends. I mentioned earlier, I'm 57 years old. That means that my life has largely coincided with the rise of the religious right and evangelical engagement with power politics and the political system. And because of evangelical engagement in politics over the course of my lifetime, many, many, many good things have been accomplished. Important things have been accomplished. We could point to the recent Dobbs decision. We could point to the freedom uh, that the Christians now have to homeschool their kids if they want to. We can, we can point to increasing religious liberty in our country. But the last decade has taken a disturbing turn. Apocalyptic language dominates the conservative outlook. Conspiratorial thinking is everywhere. And in that context, self-identifying evangelicals have begun to put their hope in political power, in, in, in politicians, in people who claim that they alone can save us from the ravages of decadent progressives. Friends, if the most powerful man in the world couldn't save Daniel from lions, why do we think a mere politician could save us from a considerably lesser threat of progressives? God's people have always been tempted to put their hope in politicians, in political power. This is, this is part of the whole history of God's people, from, from Israel's desire to have a king like the nations over them, to fast forward in church history, medieval popes feeling like, well, I've got to rule like a secular king if I'm going to protect the church, to today's misguided belief that we need a modern-day Cyrus to rescue us. Friends, this temptation, and it is a temptation that is put in front of God's people. It is an evergreen temptation. So I want you to listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 146. Do not trust in nobles, in a mere mortal who cannot save. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Daniel knew where his hope lay. That, that, that's why he kept praying the way he did. To, to quote Psalm 138, bowing down toward your holy temple and giving thanks to your name, Daniel knew that the only place 
for, for protection, for, for hope, for salvation, for God's people in a, in a secular world was God. Do we know that? Or are we tempted to put our hope in mere mortals who cannot save? How would you know if your hope is being diverted from the Lord to mere mortals? Well, have you begun to compromise your ethics for the sake of political gain? Have you begun to rationalize the behavior of your political leaders for the sake of their political advancement? Have you begun to join them, those leaders, in despising your enemies rather than loving them, as Jesus said? It would give me great pleasure to never have to talk about this again. And I'm talking about it because it's just right here in the passage. But brothers and sisters, we need to take this seriously. Because we get this wrong, and it corrupts our faith, and it corrupts our churches. And if our churches are corrupt, corrupted by hope and power politics, then where do the lost go to hear the good news? Well, this brings us, third, to the faithful servant. The faithful servant. Look at verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. I love that. <laughs> My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives, they had not reached the bottom of the den, before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. What's so fascinating about the way the narrator tells this story is we don't go into the pit with Daniel. We, as readers, go home with Darius. And so we are just as eager as Darius is to know what happened. And so we get up with Darius at first light and we race to the lion's den and, and as Darius approaches the den, he's, he's calling out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel calls out from the other side of that stone. And I, and I hope you notice, these are the only words that Daniel speaks in the entire chapter. 
And what he wants the king to know is that the king was not the only one who was fasting last night. Oh, you got it. You got it. The lion's mouths were shut too. The lions got to participate in the king's fast. He says, my God has sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. He's unharmed, he says, because I was found innocent before him, that is God, and before you, I have done no harm. Verse 22. And the king is overjoyed. Daniel's brought out, he's inspected, just as there wasn't even the smell of smoke on the three friends when they were brought out of the furnace. So there is not the slightest scratch on Daniel. He is unharmed and for the same reason. Verse 23, just like his friends decades earlier, he trusted in his God. Now, it would be tempting for me to say at this point, if you'll trust God, he'll save you from your lion's den too. But just as it wasn't the point in chapter 3, so it is not the point here. Daniel is not primarily given to us as an example to follow, though he is that. No, he is primarily a picture of someone even greater. Hundreds of years later, a greater Daniel shows up on the scene. Jesus Christ excelled in every way. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told. His, his, his enemies tried to find fault with him, but they, but they couldn't. Finally, they had to resort to deceitful and malicious conspiracy. False accusations, falsely made. Like, like Daniel, they, they tried to box in the secular authorities, insisting that he be handed over to die. But unlike Daniel, who was rescued from the lion's den, God did not rescue Jesus from the cross. Jesus died on that cross and was buried. Why didn't God rescue him? I mean, after all, didn't, didn't Jesus pray? Did, did, didn't Jesus entrust himself to the Father? Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God did not rescue Jesus because he was rescuing us. Jesus died in our place. Jesus suffered God's judgment for us. Jesus was put into the tomb that we deserve to be in. But as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to the Father even in death. Sin had no claim on Jesus, and therefore death could not hold Jesus. Three days later, that, that Roman seal was broken, the stone over Jesus' tomb was rolled back, and Jesus got up from the dead, vindicated by the Father who judges justly. 
Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That because Jesus was willing to not be rescued, but went through death for us, only being raised after that, we can now be rescued as we turn to him and put our faith in him, as we repent of our sins and trust that his death was on our behalf, we can be rescued from the judgment that we deserve. If you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Christianity. I don't want you to be distracted by all the garbage of evangelical politics these days. I want you to understand this, that Jesus died for you if you will repent and put your faith in him. Come talk to me about this afterwards or talk to the person that you came with. But but understand that this is indeed good news. God, the judge, judged Jesus in your stead if you will put your faith in him. But here's the thing, right? The, The story doesn't end with Daniel being pulled out of the pit any more than the story ends with Jesus walking out of the tomb. Ultimately, God rescues Daniel by judging his enemies. And his enemies were not the lions. The lions were just a threat. The enemies were those malicious conspirators. And you see there, In verse 24, the king orders that the malicious conspirators be thrown into the lion's den along with their families. It's a gruesome sight. It was typical of judgment in the ancient world where not only was the guilty person judged, but generations were judged afterwards. It's analogous to what we had seen earlier in in the book of Daniel where the threat was that not only will you be killed, but your house will be turned into a garbage dump. Your, your, your descendants will be like untouchables living on a garbage heap. What I want you to see is that just like we saw in chapter 3, the executioners are executed. Friends, God doesn't just save us and then leave us exposed to the same threat again. He, he, he doesn't save us. He doesn't forgive us just to give us a second chance and hope it goes better next time. No, there's no double jeopardy with God. God is a righteous judge. And this is true in a legal sense. He, He condemns sin. He punishes justly. But our God is a faithful judge. And this is true in a deeply biblical sense of judge as savior, as deliverer. This language of judge, we we stick our courtroom language on top of it, but that's not actually the main background in the Old Testament to the idea of judge. The language of judge from which Daniel's name comes, my God, God is my judge, it goes all the way back to Moses, who is the first judge of Israel, and, and, and the book of Judges, where God raises up one judge after another. And, and what we see there is that God raises up judges to deliver his people, to, to rescue his people. 
Judges chapter 2, verse 16, describes the role of the judges. It says that God raised these judges up who saved Israel from the power of their marauders. And you see this in Moses, who, who didn't just rescue Israel from Egypt, but, but actually defeats Egypt. You see it in Deborah and in Gideon and in Samson and in all the rest of the judges. God rescues his people by judging in righteousness and defeating their enemies. Now, who are our enemies? It's not the progressives. It's not the conservatives, if you're on the other side of the political spectrum. It's not some nation on the other side of the world. Who are our enemies? Our enemies are sin and Satan and death itself. And on the cross, Jesus Christ not only secured our forgiveness, he disarmed our enemy, Satan, by abolishing the sin, the the condemnation that sin deserved. You can read about that in Colossians chapter 2. And in the resurrection, Jesus defeated death itself. Friends, we've not only been forgiven the guilt of sin, we've been delivered from the power of sin. We've We've been rescued better than you know. And on the last day, our judge will not only vindicate our faith in Jesus Christ, but our judge will cast death itself into hell. And it will be swallowed up in victory. We, as Christians, declare with Daniel that in Christ, God is our judge, and that's the best news ever. It's the best news legally, because, because in a legal sense, we've been declared not guilty, but it's the, it's the best news practically. Because in a very real and practical sense, our enemies have been defeated, and there is nothing more to fear. For what can death do to us? since it's simply been turned into a a transition into being in the presence of the God who loves us and died for us. Church, this, this is our hope. This is our hope. And it all flows from from the truth that we see finally in, in, in Darius's decree the truth about the living God. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Like Nebuchadnezzar, unlike Belshazzar, Darius got the message. God is king. His kingdom endures forever. He rescues and he delivers, and Daniel is the proof. The chapter began with an edict that everyone had to pray to Darius, but it ends with an edict 
that every people, language, and nation is to worship, that is to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Why? Because he's the living God, the God who acts in history to rescue and to save his servants. Church, this is our hope. This is our hope. Our God is the living God. Jesus got up from the dead. He continues at this moment to act on our behalf. No, there's no guarantee that we'll escape suffering. God didn't prevent Daniel from going into the lion's den. He didn't prevent the friends from going into the furnace. But he preserved them through it. And church, he will do the same for us. He will do the same for you until he's ready to bring you home. I just want to encourage you, even challenge you this week, live in the confidence that God is our judge, the living God, who has not only declared us not guilty, but who rescues us and will rescue us by judging all of our enemies, including the last enemy, death itself. Church, this is not just our hope that should affect the way we live this week. This is our message. We're at the end of this first half of the book of Daniel. When I come back to do the second half, the whole thing shifts. Daniel 1 to 6, as I've said, is all about being at home in Babylon. And it's not always a comfortable home. But we're here for the same reason Daniel was there. And it's because God has a message to the nations that he's delivering through us. And that message is that God will judge the nations in their pride, but he will give his kingdom to those who humbly trust him. And he is able to rescue us from whatever may come. Daniel and his friends carried that message faithfully. Despite every risk, they declared that God lives that God saves, that he's worthy of our trust. And the, and the result, you see it right here at the end of chapter 6, as we saw it at the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2, the nation's declaring the truth about God. Friends, our message hasn't changed, but it has gotten better. Jesus Christ lives. Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ is worthy of trust. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us go out joyfully proclaiming that message, boldly declaring that message. Why why wouldn't we, after all? We have nothing to fear. God is our judge. He has already rescued us from all of our enemies. And he will do it again. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and find that, maybe that one place in your life that you're, that you're afraid to trust God. Maybe you're afraid to trust God with all of your life, or maybe you've given your life to him and there's some place, some point that you're afraid to trust him.
because you're not sure he'll deliver you. Just confess that to the Lord. come before you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and declare that you are the living God, that you have demonstrated that you act on behalf of those who trust you. You have raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and you have invaded our lives continually rescuing us from sin, from our own doubts and fears. Lord, we pray that we would live today as those who have been rescued, knowing that having rescued us from the condemnation we deserve, you will not fail to rescue us from whatever else may come until you bring us safely home. Give us lips that sing the joyful tidings of that good news, that in Christ you are our judge and you are faithful. It's in his name we pray, amen. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.